0: Hello, my friends, and welcome to another episode of Living on the Edge of Chaos podcast. My name is Aaron Mauer, and this is a podcast dedicated to pushing the boundaries of this thing that we call life, with intentional focus on balance, education, technology, and other concepts that I believe will help us find some pathways as we push our comfort zones to the edges out in the brink of chaos. And my goal with this podcast and all future episodes is to bring to light ideas, questions, people, and books that are going to spark new ideas for positive change and growth within ourselves. Chaos. Woke up at six o'clock in the morning, chilling with coffee wugs, me and coffee chugs,
1: talking education all across the nation, pushing boundaries, thinking innovation. Aaron
0: Maurer, outside the box thinker, here to teach each and every teacher how to tinker. Living on the edge of chaos, born insane. Listening to coffee chugs like even for the brain. One of the top teachers in Iowa, word is born, here to show the world that there's more here than corn. Chaos. Hello, everyone. How you doing? Welcome to another episode of Living on the Edge of Chaos Podcast. This is Aaron Maurer. And here we are with just another outstanding guest, one that many of you um, are going to be quite aware of uh, once he introduces himself here in just a, a few short seconds. And if not... Like I've said with several guests, but this is truly one, especially if you are educated a classroom, that you need to get into your resources, your PLN, uh, whatever structures of social media and, and website collecting that you do. Um, this guy has a plethora of resources and helps, and I think one of the things that separates him from, from many people who do a lot of great work um, is his work and his tips and his ideas and all the stuff that he creates. Um, not just with him, but all his colleagues that he worked with, it's it's real and it's practical. And so um, I just know in my job working with, 21 school districts on a day-in, day-out basis. There's a lot of great ideas out there, um, but it's sometimes hard to make it work in the reality of teachers who see lots of kids and the time structures and everything else. And uh, This guest here, I think, has the ideas and the visions to actually help you with the realities that we're all facing as educators. So, uh, enough of me rambling on, because I could sit there and just talk all day and no one wants to hear me talk. Um, AJ, why don't we start off with introducing um, who you are, what you do, and just kind of a quick backdrop for those maybe aren't aware of all the amazing stuff that you do
1: well man thanks again for having me on Aaron I'm excited to be here and uh just uh yeah talk practical right talk uh, stuff that actually that we actually can use um and and you know for me I personally I started off as a uh, middle school language arts teacher uh and then moved up to the high school ranks and then for some reason my school district thought it was a good idea to make me a through k-5 instructional coach and I, I remember, like the first day, I was in a first grade classroom. Like, what is going on? <laughs> right? Like, this is this is unbelievable, right? Um, and so, <clears throat> then we went one to one, and I was became a K through twelve technology staff developer and coach. And uh, then I joined the dark side of administration. And I've had all different types of uh, administrative roles: curriculum, technology, director of learning innovation, uh, and also uh, worked for graduate school of education at University of Pennsylvania, uh, teaching some online and blended courses for the Penn Literacy Network. Um in the midst of all that I happen to kind of you know catch the writing bug and uh we'll talk about that a little bit but have written a, a number of books uh some of the most recent ones and power launched the PBL playbook uh that are really focused on student agency ownership and actually you know learning through through doing so um everything that I write on my blog at ajgulinay.com uh, and podcasts and those different types of things are all accessible there. But, yeah, I'm excited to have this conversation with somebody who's working with teachers day in and day out and, and you know, about not just the the clouds, but the dirt. Right. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. Clouds,
0: yeah. Dirt. Yeah, I like that. Not just the clouds with the dirt. I, my wife and I, my wife's a teacher too. We always talk about, you know, there's there's theory land and there's reality land. Like anybody can make anything in theory land look amazing, and then you throw in the thirty variables of thirty students in a classroom and the random fire drill and uh, the kid decides to throw up and anything else that you know, all the things that come and now all of a sudden, like this theory land stuff just, just isn't working. Not that it's a bad idea. It's like holy holy buckets. And so, uh, I like that clouds and dirt. It sounds a little little little. Cleaner and nicer. Sometimes like, the theory versus reality can sometimes upset some people, especially if they live in the theory land. It's like I don't, I don't mean it offensively. I'm just saying like these ideas don't always work in a day in a day out structure of, of of education. You know. <laughs> But I want to start off, I want to dive into some project-based learning and stuff. But before that, as you were mentioning, all the different hats that you have worn in education, um, it provides you a perspective and an opportunity that not all of us have. Um, a lot of us either, we we have a passion for teaching and we spend our whole career in education. Um, some jump into admin and stay in the admin role for a long time. And when you're introducing yourself, you boy, you've worn them all. And I think one of the things that's fascinating in the culture of, of schools um, at least in a lot of things that I see, is there seems to be a, a friction um, among all these different groups. And I think it comes down to a lack of communication and just understanding perspectives. Um, and so while not that one's right and one's wrong or admin's bad or teachers are late, not, not a, I don't mean in the negative light, but there always seems to be this rub of they don't understand me. And they could be teachers looking at it um, to the admin or the admin not understanding, you know, getting frustrated that teachers don't understand. And now you have in the middle instructional coaches and all sorts of different leads and everything else that everybody has, um, which are all great roles. And so um, I want to start off on, like, what, what have you found in, in wearing all those different hats and, and probably have to change your adjustments in terms of perspective and things like that that you've really found to help maybe kind of build those bridges? Because I think it's something that while all those jobs are important, I feel like sometimes, it, it, if not done right, like it can actually hurt your culture of your building if you're not careful
1: for sure yeah i I mean i honestly i i I normally think it boils down to there's just not enough talking people like to to say this word communication there's always communication there's emails that are sent out there's memos there's all that kind of stuff there's just not enough talking Mm -hmm. and um you know i found that one of the hardest things about being an instructional coach is that you're kind of this conduit between the administration and the teachers you know we're still in the union and I was I would hear both sides and realize that both both want the same thing they want students to be successful it's just how they go about doing that right and there's not enough talking there's not enough empathy of seeing each other's perspectives and honestly the only way you get empathy is by seeing it or talking about it yeah. right and so you know, from a leadership perspective, you just gotta have more conversations. And one of the things that you know we started to do, uh, particularly when I was a director of tech and innovation and then as a director of learning and innovation, um, is just have small group meetings where we talked about things instead of having committees. Mm. So uh, I think probably the biggest issue in schools that I see are committees. Yeah. Uh, because no one knows what happens behind the closed door. Uh, There's always like strategic putting of who's on the committee and you're losing 95 percent of the voice of the teachers and and students and and community. And so, you know, uh, my leadership strategy is always just have small group meetings, uh, meeting grade levels, meeting with departments and everybody can say something that. And and guess what? We may disagree and you, you may not go, but at least they feel like they were heard. And so uh, I feel probably one of the hardest parts is that um, you know everybody feels like they know best. That's just it's just human nature, yep. right? But if we don't talk about those things and people haven't listened to our opinion, then we don't feel like we have a voice. We don't feel like we have ownership. And the same thing happens in the classroom with kids, right? If we're just consistently telling them do this, do that, do this, do that, and they're never a part of the process, then they, a lot of times they just kind of recoil back and say like why like why like this is just another thing i have to do right yeah, right playing that game and so teachers get in the habit of playing that game too because i can't tell you how many people in my career have come up to me and said hey you know thanks so much you know for having a conversation and everything but i'm just letting you know how things work around here uh you know we're all going to talk about this and then they're going to do what they want to do and the they is is a figurehead or whatever, right? The type of thing, but they understand that schools traditionally are very hierarchical. It's it's just how it works, and so in order to break that down, you just have to have conversations, and that takes time. And I think that's the hardest piece uh, of it all is to kind of be able to have the the empathy to have those conversations.
0: Yeah, and I think I mean you hit on a key point there. I mean, really, education is known for complicating the simple. You know, and really, like you said, it's just having those conversations, and time is always the uh, the variable that everyone needs more of, but like it's not hard to do like like to talk you know in small groups or have those times where people can come together and and be heard as well as also listen um doesn't require money or resources i mean there obviously is the the structure of trying to find those opportunities but you know you don't have to go out and and reinvent the wheel or you know try to do all these things that were you know we we like to come up with another acronym another buzzword another you know three year model initiative where really it's like how about we just come together and speak like stop what a riveting conversation, you know, and, 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 and opportunity, like something new. But yet it's it's less and less, you know, I think. And that's that, that's something that's um, unfortunate that can eliminate a lot of those barriers that, that a lot of us face.
1: Yeah, I think, I think committees are the worst model. And uh, I think a lot of times they were a model that was in place before the technology has been created for, to allow a lot of people um, to have opinions and, and talk and those different and there's there's tons of tools out there you know that that help you have these conversations with people in digital formats as well. You got to go to people. You can't ask them to come to you. And uh, anytime you create a committee, what you're doing is creating more friction. Yeah. And I think that's again. I think what people think is that they're getting a sampling, like almost like the electoral college but you're not (laughs) right. That's (laughs) flawed. And so is every single committee. And there's no, it's to me, it's the easy way out. Uh, but it's not the best way to do something. The best way is talking to everybody. Yeah. And and have a voice.
0: And so then how do you translate that? Then, into the classroom, and so I'm, I'm trying to make a, a brilliant segue here, it's not going to be very brilliant, into like the project-based learning of, you know, as, as, as we're trying to figure this out as adults, this is also the, the key skills that we need to figure out how to instill with our kids. Uh, you know, we always talk about we need kids to be able to think on their own and be a to, I mean, all these things, you know, if we were to do a, you know, a, a brain dumping of what it is to be the ideal graduate, uh, we're going to come up with all these brilliant things. But then, unfortunately, it doesn't always happen in the classroom. What we think we want and what we really want out of kids And our actions in the classroom don't always align um, for a variety of reasons. And so, you know, as we're trying to figure, you know, have this conversation about as professionals, how hard it is for us to speak together in person to eliminate some of these barriers. How do we move that into the classroom so we can start doing this with kids? And so maybe it isn't so foreign when they actually get into the workforce and actually – have tasks they need to solve, whether it's in the classroom or, you know, outside the classroom or when they get older and, and enter the, the the workforce. And so what are some things that you have done or seen um, with schools? Cause you get a chance to work with all sorts of people all over the world. You know, that, that culture, that classroom of getting people to once again, listen and speak, um, when we're kids. Yeah. I,
1: I think it's, it's difficult in a lot of school, um, settings because of curriculum uh constraints because of, of scope and sequence uh because of of pressures on uh teachers to be successful in assessments and tests and so i i think part uh, there's two answers i think i have here the first one is we gotta start really small right so if you want to start with project-based learning or something that you know, has kids doing more than just kind of like regurgitating information. Don't do a six week project, do a two day project. The outcome, the product, whatever kids create is not going to be as good potentially as it might have been six weeks, but the process is going to be a whole lot better. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you're not going to feel like, you're stressed for time and they're not going to feel like they have this dip and they got to you know, like group work in 2 days it's much better than group work in 6 weeks yeah does that make <laughs> sense like research done in 2 days is much more doable than research done in 6 weeks yeah creating something in 2 days is much more doable than creating something in 6 weeks because we already put that time constraint and we're like, all right, if I have two days, all I can do is make a video and I'm just going to have to do different takes because I'm not going to have a chance to edit it. So now it's taken that out of the play, right? Like there's all these different types of things yeah. that that into play when you limit time. But for teachers, what that also does for us is it makes it doable, right? It, it makes it um, something that is like, all right, I can still teach this other stuff. And I, I see people talking about project-based learning, all these different types of things. And like, they almost want people to completely change everything they're doing Yeah, and go this whole route and, and oh, look at the research. Yeah, sure. The research is there. It's compelling, but it's not the reality. That's great. There's lots of things that are research backed and we don't do in schools because we have constraints. So for me, I'm always like, choose a small thing, like maybe it's maybe you can't do anything all year because of how rigid it is until testing season comes, because then you're not allowed to give homework or any of that kind of stuff. And it's a perfect time in the class to do something that's a bit more creative, right? Uh, the other piece, though, that I think is often missing is we tend to do this like by ourselves, and that doesn't work either, right? Like you know, like close the door, I'm gonna do it by myself. You gotta find a partner and cry. You got to find someone that you can talk to and be like, how did that work for you? Like, my kids were losing it. Or (laughs) this little tweak that I did made it so much better. Or, you know, how are you thinking about great? Like, you have to have someone to talk to as an educator. right? You have to. And it doesn't have to be in your PLC, your department, or whatever. You just need a partner in crime. It doesn't even necessarily need to be in your own school. I think it's great if it is, but you just need someone that you can talk to. I, I think I really struggled um, getting started in project-based learning when I first started because I would give like fifteen steps for kids to do and a really detailed rubric, and it came out as all the exact same thing. Yeah. Chris. Chris Lehman calls that recipe-based learning, right? <laughs> uh, and, and then I joined the Flat Classroom Project with oh, yeah. Davis and Julie Lindsay. Yeah. And guess what happened? It was so much better because I had other educators to talk to. I had people that were better than me at doing this that I could learn from. I could bat ideas around. My kids – like that transformed what I thought was possible um, because I had somebody else to talk to. And So I think that's, those are two huge things. Start small and find a partner in crime.
0: Yeah, I mean, complete sidebar here of this was not the point of this conversation, but you said flat classroom. Boy, I tripped down memory lane. i have to go back and look. I wonder if we are in the same cohort because I had a very similar storyline with you, except for I was the opposite. I was the educator that um, had everything so wide open. Like, here's this thing. Let's just – I'm pushing you in along with myself and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to sink or swim. And, but that's just how my brain operated. And then I moved into the flat classroom to try to build some global awareness, try to make stuff authentic. I think that was even at a time where I don't think people were even talking about authentic learning. Like now the word auth- authenticity is everywhere. Um, but back in the flat classroom days, I'm not even sure that, you know, I'm have to go back and look at the structures. And um, I remember like that provided me like one, some global connection to working with teachers who were doing great stuff. But then two, like, Oh, Maybe I need to have some checkpoints along the way to make sure make sure the kids are actually learning um, and not, like, fake sick because they're so stressed out because, you know, Mr. Maurer decided to solve all the world's problems in, in a sixth-grade classroom in, in four weeks. Um, so that, it's so funny that you mentioned that. Now I have to go back and try to Oh, – I've got my assignment safe somewhere. Um, yeah. But, so. <laughs> Yeah, I digress. But that's – oh, man, I have to – I'll put a link in the show notes for those that are going, what is the Flat Classroom? Uh, yeah. Because there was uh, some amazing opportunities there. I'm sure it's all over the internet still. But – um Okay, so you're talking, we're, we're talking about this and, and these ideas. And so, I, another thing that I think comes up, you were talking about constraints that the that, that educators face, whether it's within a school system or district or state, whatever the, the, the things might be. Um, and, and one of the things that I know a lot of schools that I work with face is there are teachers or there's grades or there's schools that want to do project based learning. They're trying to figure it out. But they also have, in my head, I see it as like a Venn diagram. So, you have PBL circle over here, and then you have PLC over here. And so they're trying to marry both because the PLC structures of whatever they have in place is, you know, every Friday we have to have our common form of assessment with our grade level, but I'm doing an interdisciplinary project with science over here, but maybe this teacher's doing an interdisciplinary project with social studies over here, like they have the partners, but it doesn't gel, you know. And so what have you seen, or maybe it's tips or advice, um, to try to marry those, you know, so you have this you want this opportunity for kids to see the, the learning connections among subject levels, but there's still, the teacher has their hands tied, so to speak, because they still have to do these quote unquote mandates of, of data collection. Um, Not that it's bad. I'm not knocking PLC or that, um, but they, but they don't always gel together. You know, if there's not this kind of unified vision of how to make it work, if that makes any sense, it makes sense in my head. I don't know if I articulated that very clearly.
1: Yeah. I, I think part of, uh, Part of it is, this is this is personal too. Like I, I think when I was given a more summative type of assessment, I thought that I had to teach a certain way in order for my kids to be successful in that. Mm. I was completely wrong. <laughs> I mean, if if teaching to the test worked, we'd have a whole lot of schools with a lot better scores. True. It just doesn't. I whenever people like kind of bring that up, I, I try to say to them like, you want me to kind of like present all the arguments of why project-based learning will have the kids do better on the test, I can do that. What I would like you to do is present to me why teaching to the test <laughs> will have the kids do better because there's there's not much research out there or backing to actually show that. And so I think um, some people believe that if you do project-based learning that it has to be this authentic assessment. I think that's great if you can do that. But you can still have a common common, we used to call them Cubas, common unit-based assessment, (laughs) right? Uh, You could still have that and still have the learning experience be Hmm. project-based. So the both can coexist. Do you want to have something authentic at an end, a product that, yes, of course, but just maybe you can't, right? Or maybe sometimes you can. Uh, And the other piece is, a lot of times we just think too big. I I mean, honestly, that is... That is a lot of the reason for burnout. It's a lot of the reason. I'll give, I'll give you this. I'll give you this example. If uh, if you had six weeks in a unit, right, a lot of people would say, "All right, let's do like a project project for six weeks." I would say, have six one-day projects in that time, and your kids are going to learn a whole lot more than if you had a six-week project. Mm. What what happens though is that we don't have that fancy product at the end that we all hang our hat on. Right. And to me, it's not about that final product. It's about the learning process that happens. How many standards you can hit in those activities. And I you know, uh, to me, it's just a, it's a project-based learning experience because you're doing something, right? Um, but that, to me, is the big shift. And you know, when I wrote the PBL playbook, we got like fifty-some stories of teachers doing different project-based learning experiences in there. Some of them are big, epic projects. Other ones are just short, did it in a couple days. And that, to me, is the missing piece in all of this with the PLC and and PBL kind of Venn diagram, which is stop thinking it's got to be eight weeks and tie in every single interdisciplinary and everything. Like that. That's great in a perfect world. If your world doesn't allow you to do that. Then change it, right? I mean, change change yeah. your expectations of what this could look like. But a lot of what's written online, a lot of the videos that people see—if they go to the Buck Institute, they go to—they see these huge things, and so they think that that's the only way to do it. It's—it's it's not, right? And there's there's lots of other ways to do it, and I think that's what holds people back. You still can do your common base assessments. We do so in, in my district. It's you know, it's it works, right? You know. Yeah. It it completely coexists.
0: I think, I mean, I think I'm so glad that you phrased it that way. And I, hopefully every educator listening is nodding their head uh, because I think what's something that's so important for us um, is to give ourselves permission um, that we don't have to have the next project, the next lesson plan that makes it on the front page of the newspaper in a good way, um, you know, or the next viral hashtag. um, And I think is, you know, we all go to these different uh, aspects to try to find these answers and solutions and examples. Um, It can become very overwhelming thinking, oh, my gosh, we have to have, just as you said, this monstrous six, eight, you know, full-year project that's, you know, going to solve these these monstrous issues. And, you know, um, the conversations I have, and obviously all I can do is just give ideas and and nudge people, um, but it's that, you know, start you have to build confidence in yourself as an educator. Like, if you don't have the confidence in yourself, the kids aren't going to build the confidence in themselves either. Like, it starts with you. And so if that means you're going to do, just like you said, a one-day or two-day little project just to – understand the flow, see how it works, talk with kids, and you can gradually build. And when the opportunity presents itself for something that is bigger, something that might, you know, have this bigger kind of presence, then you run with it. Um, but you can't force that. Uh, that's just not the way the world works. And I think in education, we try to make the world adapt to <laughs> our constraints of the school day, and it's just not there. Um, you know, we, we did I was just at a at a PBL one oh one uh PBL works, workshop with the school district just uh, a few weeks ago and during that time we actually had we had a big global project, one of the seventh grade teachers uh, we worked with a refugee camp in over in Africa and long story short the the food and everything that we did you know finally arrived and it was awesome and special you know but what we're very clear to tell the teachers in the room because they were sharing it because we want people to see that it can be done um, is that the real learning was the four mini week long projects we did that we had a, a, a driving question of what were big you know all four weeks of these many things fed into this bigger idea sure. but we chunked it into this week we're looking at this You know, essential question, Uh, you know, whatever you're learning, you know, however, whatever your mandates are going to be. And each week we focus on a different element, you know, so we had these little mini projects and challenge and learning and reading, um, you know, feeding into this bigger piece. And so that's where the power was. I mean, obviously, you feel good about the end result of what we're able to provide, but the real learning for the kids – You know, if you look at content-wise, everyone feels pressure on. Was the week-by-week work, you know, and we built life skills and empathy through this bigger global context. Um, And I think that gets lost in the shuffle. The 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 pictures of the food make the headlines, not the formative assessments that the teacher were doing to ensure that kids are actually learning what they needed to learn. (laughs) But but
1: honestly, think about it. It's like um, the the thing I try to do, and I, I think you're trying to do it as well. Is I'm just trying to take away excuses. Yeah. So if you really do. If you as a teacher really do believe that your kids will learn better through a project based learning experience, which most teachers tend to agree with, right? It's a, yeah. I don't say that. It's not like it's going to blow in people's minds. Like most people agree with that. Yeah. If you do, then why aren't you doing it more? What are the excuses? So the first one is always, I don't have the time, right? It's first one. I don't have the time. This is the first kind of excuse. All right. Yeah. Shorten the time. The second one is, how does it fit with my curriculum? Let's figure it out. Let's take the standards, create an experience that actually hits your standards and, and is coexisting with curriculum. There's lots of different ways to do it. You share tons of different examples of people doing that. Now the third one is always, well I don't know how my kids are going to do go well with of the tests. All right, if you' if you're a teacher that teaches multiple classes, why don't you just try it with one class and try it with the other class and see something right? Like there's you want to take those excuses away because they are the things that hold us back. And it's really the main driving question is what if it doesn't work as well as what I'm currently doing? Yeah. That's really it, right? And yeah, you won't know unless you do it. Right? That, right. that's that that's that's always kind of my thing is and I don't think it's gonna hurt the kids. Right. <laughs> you know, it's kinda, yeah. I don't think it's <laughs> gonna hurt the kids, right? It's not like it's not like something dangerous has happened here. I think you're gonna learn a lot. The kids are gonna learn a lot and if it's for a couple days then you move on, right? That type of thing. But I'm always just trying to like And I get to work with lots of different schools and I see the same type of excuses come up over and over again and try to be empathetic of being like I was there as a teacher the first time I was trying to do. I had the exact same fears, the exact same excuses. Um, You know, I wanted to do something different that had my kids engaged, though. And and that ultimately, like, you know, being a teacher is is the best job in the world when your kids are engaged it can be a challenging job in the world but when your kids are engaged and they're enjoying learning it's the best job in the world and so i wanted to have that feeling more and more as a teacher which is why i got more and more involved and i think it it does become kind of contagious and addictive to have that feeling
0: yeah so I'm, i'm curious then as as you're sharing through this and um so let's 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 go do a scenario. Let's say it's not a two-day project. Let's say, it's, but it's also not an eight-week project. Let's say it's somewhere in the middle. So you're kind of you're feeling good. You got your feet wet. You got excited. So you're somewhere else to say say two to four-week project, um, and you're trying to leverage, try to get to the end point of whatever the the end piece is going to be of the project, um, but you're still trying to navigate assessment. This seems to be something that pops up time and time again. And not I'm not so worried about. PLC assessment, but the idea of I'm building in my check my checkpoints along the way to make sure the kids are also learning and doing what they're doing. And one of the questions always comes up is, um, you know, I'm gathering this information, but how do I? In real time, convert over the data, um, whatever I'm collecting on the kids, whether it's through conversation or a quick check, whatever it might be, it doesn't matter, um, to then differentiate their needs but also still try to keep on pace with the project. Um, and really what I think this is, is this is more of just a general teaching question, uh, whether you're doing to do projects or not. But, you know, um, so many teachers are facing, like, I had to do these formatives, one, because it's good teaching practice, but then to turn around and then create different pathways t- depending on where the kids landed, you know, in the responses of, uh, of the data by still also trying, in a case of a project, and reach this end piece. And so I don't know, um, you know, if you've got ideas or you have seen schools try to work through this, because I think this becomes a challenge. And then I think what naturally happens, people get stressed. They do the formative, they say they did the formative, but they don't really do anything with the data, and they just hope that the end result is, is good enough to... Kind of validate why we didn't do much along the way, um, which we all know. Whether you're doing projects or not, you know, in the end, you know, you can't, you shouldn't be shocked by whatever that end piece is. Going, oh, I can't believe Billy wasn't ready. Like, okay. you, you should have seen the warning signs far ahead. Of what did you do to help him? You know, try to be successful. Yeah. So it definitely
1: varies. the age and grade level. Sure, sure, sure. Uh, but try to K 312 twelve. Always try at the start of a project to have kids create an action plan. If it's a first grader, it's gonna look very different than if it's an 11th grader. Uh, but the whole point of an action plan is to have them backwards design, right? So if they're saying, you know, by the end of this project, I am going to uh, have created a um, way to gamify recycling in our cafeteria, all right? And you know, our idea is to create a basketball hoop that goes on top of the recycling bin and we're gonna have that in it. So at the end is the basketball hoop that can count up the points of the things going in, All right, that's step eight. Step seven is we have to have a working prototype that we can test out, right? Step six is we need to manufacture, the, like, so they backwards design that. Okay. Just an action plan, we have these templates inside of Launch and Empower, we wrote both of them. Um, and basically what that allows the teacher to do is, so we have the steps and then we basically say, all right, when are these gonna be completed by? We got four weeks. What are the dates we're gonna have this? Sometimes we give them the dates, other times they can plug them in, right? All right, who's gonna be working on this? What do you need? Put that down for each step. What are potential barriers? Put that down for each step. And then on the last one we just have, have you conferenced with you know, your partner group, you have an accountability group. We always have like a group that's accountability or the teacher, you know, on those. So now as a teacher, I have a copy of that. They have a copy of that. We're on the same page. We know where they're gone. Mm-hmm. They know that we we're, we're there. So it could be day five and I know where Aaron's group is supposed to be. So when I walk around the classroom, I'm not walking around blind. Yes. I'm walking around with it right in front of me, knowing where they're supposed to be. And when we have a conversation, we're on the same path. It's almost like when a principal is doing a walkthrough of a teacher and the teacher has previously said, here's what I'm going to be doing in my class, and the principal mm-hmm. knows, and now they can have a back and forth conversation, it's so much better because now they both – it's not just they're walking in blind, right? They have a back. Yeah. Same thing here. So conferences happen quicker and much more naturally and so that formative you know, uh, kind of conversation is actually really telling because now you can see are they on track, right? The other thing that we do is that we have kids use the GRIT rubric. I don't know if you've ever seen the GRIT rubric before. You ever seen that?
0: I don't think I have, but I'll definitely uh, make a note to check it out, though.
1: Somebody's, you know, listen, just Google it uh, G R I T, the GRIT rubric. It's a process oriented rubric uh, that was developed by the San Francisco College Track. G stands for guts, R for resiliency, I for integrity, and T for tenacity. Uh, and it has three different indicators of, of kind of what they're doing there and it is a self-assessment rubric. Uh, when we do it with like our K-1-2 kids, we read it to them a lot of times and have them a, a highlight or put a sticker of which area they think that they are uh, when the kids are older and they can read, we just have them highlight. Now as a teacher, I have their feedback. If I disagree, Aaron said, no, nah, I think I'm a three here in the, uh, you know, the resiliency. Not only do I have resiliency, but I help others have resiliency. That's kind of like the three. I'm like, Aaron, I haven't really seen you help anybody else, right? Could you tell me about the time where you help somebody? Now, again, the formative is a lot, has a lot more meaning because it's about the process. Mm. Like we're, asses- we're assessing the process. We're assessing the learning. In those checks... Now, as a teacher, I am really being the guide there, right? I'm facilitating the learning and I'm seeing where people are at. If there's specific standards or content that I want them to learn throughout the project-based learning experience, I would have short retrieval practice, formative quizzes for them to take along along the way. There's nothing wrong with that. All the science says retrieval practice is one of the best things we can do to improve learning, but it has to be the kids retrieving that information, not us providing it to them. Uh, retrieving that. So if there's, you know, if I'm, uh, if we're doing a pinball pinball game and we're looking at force and motion, and there's specific things about force and motion that I want my kids in the project to understand at different checkpoints, I'm going to check for the understanding. And if it's not there, right, I would probably do it online so I could see big picture where people are at. Uh, then I'm going to have to have a short little mini lesson. We're going to have to go over it. and Right. So those are the things you can do as a teacher. Don't don't overcomplicate it. Right. Yeah. A, the process checks for understanding. And if there is specific content or standards, have some short little retrieval practice quizzes that are in there so that you know they're on the right track and not waiting toward the end and being like, oh, my God, this is a complete disaster. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean it's it's so important and I mean it's something to to highlight from there is you know as you were talking I think for us as educators when we think project based learning especially if we're if we're new to this is we don't have to be redlining at DOK level 4 all day every day like you have to have I think it's um I just started reading it. Um, Michael McDowell, rigorous PBL. Um, And I'm just, but he talks about surface, deep and transfer, you know, and the idea that you should have equal of all those, um, you know, within a project based learning. And, And, and I think that makes some sense. Like for those teachers that, maybe our traditional uh, lecture-type teachers, like, yep, you know, there is a time and place for that. We're not saying that you have to just completely discard all of that. Like, there is a time and place. We, sometimes it is the best way to get out knowledge, um, you know, and for someone like me that just wants to go dive in and, you know, solve all the world's problems, I have to be cognizant of the fact that my kids have to have a base foundation and, and some skills and concepts in order to do that. And so I think it's it's really important that as we think about project-based learning – all those things are fundamental in order, in order for it to be successful. Like you can't put all your eggs in one basket, um, and that's just common sense teaching. I, and I, don't, I say common sense because it's like it, to me it just seems so duh. But I think it's also again giving ourselves permission to go. Yes, there is a time and place for multiple choice. There is a time and place for many a, a little mini lecture. Just like there is a time and place for kids to work through failure and to try to do something amazing in that transfer level or that you know that that off authentic learning opportunity, you know, in the case of our kids working with Africa. Um, But it's not that Africa was the reason that we did the project, but there was an opportunity to transfer what we were doing week to week into this bigger scheme, you know. And so I think that that's so important for people to remember. Um, And it's really just giving ourselves permission to say, okay, it is okay. (laughs) I mean, we forget to do that. I I love.
1: Obviously, we write about this a lot. I, I love the bigger, epic, global, authentic projects. My point is you just don't have to start there. Yes. Right? Just like when you're – use this analogy of a, a cook and a chef all the time, right? Where you don't just like wake up one day and become a chef and like just make your own recipes and cook for thousands of people and people love it. Like you don't do that. You're First, you start as a by-the-book cook. You get a recipe. It's yes. you, a YouTube video. You follow it to the T. Maybe it's good. Maybe it's not. You improve upon that. Eventually you start to like add your own flair to that recipe. Then you start to kind of cook with innovations. You're mixing and matching different recipes, putting your take on it. Eventually you create your own recipe. For some reason in teaching, we think that we have to create our own recipe. Like the only only valid PBL experience is that I have to think it up in my head and it's going to be this great thing and no one ever has done it before. Like imagine if doctors thought that way. Like, you know what? I'm not going to see how that guy does open heart surgery. I'm (laughs) going to figure it out on my own. And that's silly. There's tons of great teachers out there that have already done amazing projects and project based learning experiences. Start with those. See see what works and then build up to be your own recipe project creator. I, I think it's just. It, it is a bigger detriment because people feel like as the teacher, I got to create everything. I don't like right, that type of thing. It's, it's just completely not true. There's nothing in life that works that way. You know? Yeah.
0: Yeah. Like grandma's casserole recipe is, it's is pretty spot on, you know, come Thanksgiving. I don't need to try to come up with my own. No. Um, it's pretty solid and legit the way it is, you know? And, uh... <laughs> and it works well, right? So it's like, why not
1: start with those things? Yeah. Because probably the someone who created that project or that recipe has spent a lot of time and a lot of years doing that. That's like your global project. You've spent tons of years doing it, making mistakes, improving, iterating, all that kind of stuff. And now if you're joining that, they're getting the expertise of someone who's done it. And not just about the actual project, but also the process. Right. And understand yep. that there's gonna be dips and all these different types of things. And I I just I see so many teachers that put so much pressure on themselves yes. to create everything themselves. Like they want to create their own rubrics. They want to like no, go use the Grit Rubric. It's developed by San Francisco College Track. It's used by people all over the world, and it works. You know, like it's it's backed by it. Like just go use it. You don't have to make your own. Right. That that to me is the thing that always is like, oh my god, you got making this too much too difficult.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's where it's you know you you you're so yeah i mean i could do we, i could just talk to y'all day on this because i think we we do it, it comes back to i guess something i said at the beginning you know we we tend to overcomplicate the process like there are things out there to use use it and then you can kind of figure out your own flair i was just having a conversation with the teacher um on trying to help develop another project. And you're like, how do you do this? How do you, I'm like, well, I've been at it for a decade now and I'm still not perfect. Um, And I do, I do try to document all the mistakes and errors in my ways. but like for every, you know, I said, you know, I throw a hundred darts and one lands and 99 don't, but you know, you don't, you don't live with me you don't see the process like you don't get to see all those darts falling off the board or missing completely you just see the ones that actually do land because those are the things that you know typically end up on the blog or you hear stories about it or things like that so it's like you know i have to ask you a question how many
1: times how many times have you launched and relaunched a a newsletter (laughs) serious
0: (laughs) how many times oh geez i think uh i think this is like the fourth or fifth iteration probably in five i bet every year i i yeah
1: yeah I'm starting my sixth podcast (laughs) this fall, right? Like I'm starting my sixth. I've tried all different types of ones. Some I stuck with longer than others and some that didn't, I've had group blogs and different types of things. Like every single year I write like this failing report because I want to show that there's so much stuff that doesn't work. And I think that, you know, is like this, Oh, you got to fail forward. Like I think it's this, this overdone thing that people are like, Oh yeah. Okay. But yeah, it's, it's more just about like trying things and seeing if they work and if they don't being okay with quitting them and, and that to me is like you know the the hard thing that I think people don't understand is like it's if something's not working it's okay here's the issue though when you do something for six to eight weeks it becomes a reflection on you and so if it doesn't work you now feel like you're a failure as a teacher. Yeah. We all have crappy lessons. So if you just do it for a couple days or a week and it doesn't go as well as planned, then all right, go ahead, we're moving on to the next thing, right? So that's you know, again, for people at different stages of project based learning, their experience, I think there's there's different things that we can focus on, milestones, but I, I really see that all the time. Um, like, like I I mess up all the time and continue to do so. And yeah, guess what? It sucks. Like I you know, like my last podcast, it sucked. That I didn't get as many people listening to it. I didn't feel like my audience got enough out of it, and I didn't feel like I got enough out of it. And I put tons of time and effort into it, and I had to stop it. Right? Like that, that sucks, but it just, it's what
0: happens. Yeah. I mean, I think it goes back to something that you said several times that I hope people really, really take away from the podcast is like, this is why, especially if you're starting to start small, to find out what works and doesn't work. And so you don't get into an eight week project. You get four weeks and you go, Oh boy, this ship is sinking fast. And now what do you do for four weeks? You can't depart because kids have already invested. Whether you see it sinking or not, they've invested it. So it's very hard. I think sometimes to get out of the way. So it's very hard just to, to shut it down. Um, and that just doesn't, it's, that's a That's a hard pill to swallow, especially when you've put time into it well, I think it goes back to start with the one day two day, build into a week where you can make those adjustments, and if it doesn't work out, you haven't really lost a whole lot in the scheme of the big picture you know I mean I think about even like my own podcast um, I love podcasting, and this is a year that I've really decided to like just really hammer it and do it to the best of my capability and see where it takes but if you look at the journey of this podcast it's been ongoing off and on for five or six years and mm-hmm. uh, I went back and listened to one of the first ten episodes I had like a, a repeat guest and I I couldn't even I couldn't even finish listening to it and I just wanted like Apologize to the guy, like, I am so sorry that I dragged you. I don't know why you said yes to me in the first place, but I'm glad you did. But good God, was it terrible! And I'm not saying I'm perfect now. I mean, this, you know, uh, it's not like the, this podcast pays the <laughs> bills, and you know, and you know, and was like millions of people are listening, but like, I gain a lot from it. But man, if you could look at the start and stop points of when I was like, okay, this is just not. Right. Not working for me. So it's, it's you know, we all have it. And it's and kids have that as
1: well. I think that's, and that's the other piece is like understanding that the kids are going through the same thing when they're doing a project-based learning experience. They're feeling the high of the idea and they're feeling the high of the ideation. And then all of a sudden they got to do it. And they're like, oh, this isn't going as I thought, as I envisioned, right? Frustration happens because our reality doesn't meet our expectations. Yeah. And that happens for teachers, and it happens for kids. We have expectations that it's going to go this way. The reality is it goes this way, and all of a sudden we're frustrated. And just understanding that that happens to every human involved in the learning experience allows it to be a better learning experience.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think we look at it too. Like you read like stories of makers who are like professional makers. You know, whether they're doing prop design for Star Wars or whatever it is. You know, they always talk about we have this end piece, we build this prototype, but then the end product never actually. Lands the way that like so you can't I mean as much as we try to make it be that um, it's just not practical. Sometimes it exceeds, sometimes it doesn't, and sometimes it veers so far left, but still in a good way. And so uh, you know you you can you can project it out, but you have to be willing to come to terms with that fact that it's not going to be like what it was when they had the idea pop up in your head at two in the morning when you couldn't sleep. Right. <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time Matt, because I I could literally talk to you for hours. This has been so good, um, but you know, as as we kind of kind of wrap this up here, because um, we could talk PBL. Obviously, you've written several books and you've got all sorts of online courses. So it, there's there's so much more to this, more that you can provide than just in a you know a, a 60 minute chat. But the last question I have for you, and then we'll make sure we get links to all the stuff where they can find you is, um, you know, what are some of those? because you've written books and you've got the podcast and you've, I mean, you've got all these platforms of things. What are some of these unwritten, I don't want to call them rules, but unwritten tips that, you know, as, as, as people can read about these things, you can go to PBL works and high tech high and expedite. I mean, stuff is everywhere. Um, but I'm always trying to like, what are these unwritten things that no one's really tackling that are still essential in order for a project to actually be successful? You know, I mean, I think it's, I'm not gonna say easy because that's not fair, but like people have templates, and there are, you know, there are these things that you can kind of follow and model. But I always think like sometimes there's some ingredients that no one's really really tackling because it's a little dicey, maybe um, that without those, the rubrics and the templates don't matter. Yeah, um,
1: you know, I, I think uh, part of part of the, I'll I'll share a couple things. Uh, first thing is don't start with the standards. Start with a reason for learning. So start with a compelling reason. I like that. Because we're constantly in an attention battle with our, our students. They can pay attention to more things now than they ever could before. Uh, they've got more things just vying for their attention. So <clears> – <throat> If we're doing something in school that is not relevant, not meaningful, and they don't have a real reason, a compelling reason, then they're probably going to pay attention to something else. And you can't learn unless you're paying attention. And so I would start there, compelling reason, and then you know, and the compelling reason could be a product, it could be a problem, it could be empathy, it could it could be a lot of different reasons, right? Um, and then go to the standards. Now, I think that's a big switch. A lot of times people start with yes. the standards and then go to the reason. I would do it the other way around. And I think it, it's very hard to have a successful project if you do it just starting from the standards. I, I just think it's hard, right? Yeah. Um, the other one is just as small a groups as possible. Group group work is, is hard. You know, my, my <laughs> wife, uh, my wife won't let my daughter have a sleepover with more than two girls. Um, Smart woman. <laughs> and same thing with my son, right? Um, because, it's just the more people, the, the more areas are to hide, the more the areas are for conflict. And uh, you know, t- two to three people, I say, is max. I think if you go over three people as a teacher, you're doing yourself and the kids a huge disservice. Um, and you see that in your, own, in your own work. When you plan with two to three people, it's great, right? Just a partner or maybe two other people. All of a sudden you get four or five people trying to plan something together. It's difficult. Right? No, it's it's very so the same thing happens with kids. I would say the, the smallest amount of numbers possible, and even sometimes individual. For some reason, we think like everything has to be a group project and project-based learning. I, I don't think it does. Um, and quite honestly, it's easier to manage uh, when you're first kind of you know doing this type of stuff if it's just one kid you know doing working on something.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. The other the other piece is there's got to be some aspect of choice built in. That doesn't mean complete freedom. It doesn't mean genius hour, 20% time, that that type of thing. There just has to be some type of choice built in, right? Um, Choice in who you're working with, choice in who your authentic audience is, choice in the pace, uh, choice in how you're demonstrating understanding, choice in the technology you use, like uh, some type of choice. And the the more choice you can give within the constraints, because there's going to be constraints, um, the better opportunity you have for success. And I would say the final piece is, Kids have to know right from the beginning um, how they're going to be assessed. So you can't like make that up as you go along. They have to know because they're used to playing the game of school. And the game of school is I want to figure out how you're going to assess me and I'm going to do – as much as I need to do to get to the level that I am used to getting to. So for my honors level students, that was the difference between a B and an A. For a lot of my academic level students who just wanted to pass, that was the difference between an F and a D. Uh, you know, my my daughter who's in you know fourth grade, the game of school for her was just making the adult at school happy. Yes. So the people at home are happy, right? Um, so to me, like letting kids know that, all right, we're grading your process here. And the final product's not going to be everything. Um, so those are, those are a couple things that I think are, are really key and uh, sometimes go
0: underlooked. I love it. I mean, I think those are all things, whether you're deciding to leap into the world of project based learning or just really kind of think about your philosophy of, of teaching and education. I mean, those are things that are applicable to anything we do. Um, regardless of where we are in the continuum of uh, project-based learning. And so lots of good stuff there for, I think, for us to think about, um, you know, whatever level of kids we're working with as well as ourselves. And I think something that you hit upon that really kind of stood out to me was that, you know, I think as we think about our classroom procedures, whether it's, class, you know, group size or, you know, the assessments, think about yourself as a professional, the things that um, really help you feel good and successful within your school and the things that drive you crazy um, because very often those are the same things that kids are going to feel uh, within your classroom. And so I think that's, you know, um, teachers get frustrated when they don't know the expectations of what they're being evaluated on, you know, yeah. like, okay, so the kids are going to feel that same way if you don't do that for them in the classroom. You know, when you sit in a, in a, in a committee of 10 um, and nine people walk out frustrated uh, that's how kids feel in group work of five, six, seven, eight kids. Uh, you know, I mean, so I think there's there, there's a parallel there that you know, as as you were talking, like there's I think we can self reflect on ourselves and make sure we don't have our kids feel the same way that we sometimes feel the negative feeling. The good stuff that that's what you want to capitalize on as well. I should say, not everything in in the professional world is bad, but uh, you know, um, there are, there are definitely plenty of things that do give us headaches um, in that world. So. <laughs> sure. I agree. So, AJ, this has been absolutely Incredible. I think this is going to lead to so many new insights and questions and conversations and people wanting to learn more about your work and and ways to get started because I think you've really showed, just like I in the introduction, man, you give just real practical ideas, thoughts, and insights that teachers can actually use um, to get started and to strengthen what they're already doing if they're on their journey. So I I can't thank you enough for that. But for those that want to know um, where to find you, Access the resources. I'll definitely put all the links in the show notes. Um, what are what are some of those places um, for them to uh, explore to either reach out to you or just learn more about all the amazing things that you actually offer for people to get started? That you know that that, that are free. Um, you know um, to you know just become better educators so our, our kids can be happier and more successful in the classroom.
1: Yeah, I, I think the uh, easiest place is just my website ajgigliani.com. And I'm AJ Giuliani everywhere, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook. Uh, So whatever is your platform of choice of communicating. Also email, I'm just ajjuliani at gmail.com. So uh, very easy to kind of connect to based on kind of where you're at. And I would go to that website. When you get there, you'll see uh, you have the option to sign up for the free innovative teaching toolbox. Tons of resources, ideas, a lot of stuff that we talked about uh, today is there uh, for you when you get subscribed. So yeah, I would would say it's the best spot. Um, but again, yeah, whatever platform you're comfortable of of hanging out on, uh, I'm, I'm usually there as well. So thanks again for having me on Aaron. I appreciate it, man. It was a great conversation, very practical, a lot of dirt, a lot of dirt there. Yeah. Yeah.
0: (laughs) uh, Yeah.
1: A lot of fun. So, uh, you know, again, thanks for having
0: me on. No, thank you. I really appreciate it. This has been uh, so good.